Hey guys, welcome to the What About Podcast. My name's Owen and it's great to have you with us for this first podcast of 2023. Things are gonna look a little bit different over the next five weeks. I'm sure you're used to the normal format where I have a couple of guests and we discuss a topic. This is gonna be slightly different. We're going to be taking the Lord's Prayer and taking it a couple of verses at a time. I've got a guest each week who's then going to talk about those verses and pick them apart. And then we're gonna discuss that afterwards about what that looks practically in their life and in the life of the church. So I hope you're looking forward to that. My first guest, I'm really happy to say, is actually my wife, Catherine. Hello. Um, It's really lovely to have you on the podcast and to chat through this first bit of the Lord's Prayer. These lines are Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So over to Catherine, who's going to talk to us a little bit more about that. Fab. Yes, so we know that the Lord's Prayer we can find in Matthew 6, starting verse 9. I know there's some copies of it elsewhere, but I specifically am looking at those first lines. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The introduction to the prayer that Jesus has given us sets the tone for many relationships that we bring with us when we approach God in prayer and in praise. We begin with that simple hour. It is in keeping with many of the well-established Jewish prayers at the time. We have the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. There's the Mishnah Yomit, which repeats that there is no one that we can rely on apart from our Lord that is in heaven. And the Kaddish, which talks about exalting and sanctifying the name of God. So the practice of liturgy and of saying prayers together would have been familiar to the disciples as they sought from Jesus the prayer practices that aligned with his teaching as a first century Jewish rabbi. In using that pronoun "our" throughout the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is continuing this great tradition of rabbinic Jewish liturgy into the Christian practice. When Jesus taught us to pray, he inherently taught us to pray together as the church We are joined together with each other and with the other believers around us when we pray, but we are also connected to all of the believers around the world of every tribe and tongue that already know God. And we echo with the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us in the faith and have already died. I don't know about you guys, it could feel like our practice of prayer can at times feel new or strange or like we're trying a new thing. We want to approach God afresh. But in the Lord's Prayer, we are called to align ourselves with the entire body of Christ. And we can take comfort and hope in the fact that we are not the first people (laughs) to have ever tried to pray. We come together as believers to approach God and we participate in our prayer and in our approach to God together. Then the prayer, of course, carries on from our to our Father. And this is kind of a deviation from that traditional Jewish liturgy, which would have often been more formal and used many other titles to address God. Jesus almost exclusively prayed to God as his Father, which I think is all of the recorded prayers in the Gospels except for one According to the commentary I read, Jesus refers to God as Father specifically. And Jesus hands that title over to us. He gives us permission to address God as our Father as well, first and foremost, as we are invited to be God's children alongside Jesus, really sets us in that context and how to relate to God. It's the Greek word pater that we see kind of throughout the translation of the Greek New Testament, but it's specifically used alongside Abba in Romans 8, in that cry of Abba, Father. It's that same Father that we see in this, the Lord's Prayer. 
and it echoes that glorious truth that by the spirit of God that lives in us and through us, we are brought into sonship and, you know, that siblingship with Christ almost before God. We can cry out to God in an intimate and familiar way, in the way that Jesus did, as he showed us through his life, through his modelling. We are invited into, we're invited into knowing God's love as paternal, as personal, as active. God is so dynamic in his approach to us and his response to us. He could have chosen any title. God would have been well within his rights to be known first and foremost as the king, as the Lord, as the savior of all. And we, of course, we do know Jesus as those things. But God himself modeled to us that God himself is a father first and foremost. What an incredible invitation that is for us. We literally cannot overstate the depth of God's love for us and the care and attention he takes in watching over our lives and guiding us with that sweet father's love that he has for all believers. We follow on from our father into kind of an immediate contrast, our father who is in heaven. The presence of God transcends our earthly experience. He is above, he is in heaven, and I'm sure we are often reminded that we are not. But this should inspire that reverence in us. We remember God's sovereign power and complete authority. The God who is our father is also the ancient of days, who has stood and will stand for all time, who holds each passing moment in his hands and grants us every breath. He is glorious, he is full of splendour. This is something that would have been kind of great and terrible to behold before the coming of the Holy Spirit and before us being indwelt by God. Those heavenly realms were for so long kind of inaccessible to mankind for fear of death. None could approach God in his heavenly realm unless they were spotlessly clean and made righteous. And in the lives of the Israelites, that looked like ritual bathing and sacrifice, you know, the blood of an animal required to create a state of righteousness that even then wasn't quite complete. And people would rightly then approach the presence of God rarely and fearfully, even at that state of ritual righteousness and cleansing. And it was appropriate to have that fear of the Lord. His heavenly nature is so unlike ours and it is you know, dangerous to a mere mortal form. But we live now under a new paradigm under Jesus where that enormously powerful heavenly being chooses to dwell in and among us. It's just a glorious truth. In the New Testament, we are often reminded and it's repeated to set our minds on the things above. We're reminded of the things that are in the heavenly places, that God dwells within the heavenly places. We are focused throughout the New Testament writing on the heavenly place where our Father is. God has humbled himself, come to earth and drawn near to us. And we remember that truth, particularly through Advent and Christmas. But God has also glorified us in his presence with us so that we can draw near to him in heaven. There would be no other way to reach up other than to be received by our Father who is already there. It's just kind of four small words that start off the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, but there are three powerful truths that we acknowledge just in that small phrase. We are a body, we are a family, we come together to a ever-present and ever-personal Father 
who is also the Lord of all and is seated in the highest of heavens, where better than to go than into the next line, which is hallowed be your name. There are obviously a few different translations of the Bible and a few different translations of this passage in Matthew 6. So that phrase, hallowed be your name, can also be translated as may your name be kept holy or may your name be honoured as holy. Once we have aligned ourselves with the truth of our position before God, it is a response. We are moved by that truth to worship God, to declare that his name is holy and hallowed. It's the first petition we find in the Lord's Prayer. We'll get to the others later in the series. But the first thing that the disciples were taught to ask of God was that God would glorify his name, that he would be made holy in and on the earth. And this is the motive as we live and interact with the world and with others around us as well. Lord, let your name be blessed in our lives and through how we live. It is set up as this kind of natural response of the believer to worship God. When we, when we remember the truth of who God is, of what he has done, of how he relates to us, praise pours forth, or at least we are taught to pray um, in a way that allows praise to pour forward and to develop a habit of praise in response to who God is. We see it all throughout the Psalms where the Psalmist cries out in all kinds of emotions, in pain or in praise, whatever it may be, in looking to God and the truth of who he is, the Psalmist will remember who God is and praise him regardless of their circumstance and in doing so find hope for that current circumstance as well. When we refer to the name of God, it's something that we see quite often kind of in worship songs or through scripture. And as it says here, you know, hallowed be your name. We are referring to kind of the character of God, the essence of who God is and his reputation. We are declaring that God will make his power and his presence and his reputation known, but also in the kind of the con conjugation of that verb, there's a, it applies to two subjects. It applies to God that he will make his name known, but it applies to us as well. When we say, God, hallowed be your name, we are accepting the responsibility for our part in hallowing God's name in our lives and on the earth. We are to live lives that bring honour to God's presence and that bring glory to his reputation in the world. It's active. We participate in hallowing God's name. Kina, who has written one of the commentaries that I've read, has written, One can ask with integrity for the future hallowing of God's name on that final day, only if it is lived in the present as if one values it. We look forward to God's return, Jesus' return in the future, but to long earnestly for that is put into action by us hallowing God's name here and now in how we live our lives. In the modern day, we can often see prayer as kind of this way to share ourselves with God, you know, talk to God about your day, tell God what's on your mind, pour out your heart before God. And these are all very valid kinds of prayer. I'm not saying we don't do that at all. I would actively encourage it. But as we're doing that, as we're pouring out everything that is within us before God, do we remember who God is? You know, Jesus has taught us first to come before God as he is and to hallow his name, to honour and glorify him 
and to allow that truth to resonate with our spirit and kind of return us to the truth of how we live in and under the presence of God. Worship is one of those things that edifies and focuses the soul as we are drawn to worship God in prayer. Obviously, worship can take many forms beyond prayer, but I would highly recommend prayerful worship. And there is a particular power in the worship as we see in the Lord's Prayer. Worship that happens in a community, worship that focuses and centres on God and honours him as one who is so personal and so powerful. It's often quoted that St Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. And it's held in a, as a proverb in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. As we draw together in worship and we sing God's praises, it is uniquely powerful and prayerful to sing together. As you said, our joint praise comes from our joint active participation in hallowing God's name. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to jump and you know wave around and dance, even though we do have some very talented people who do that. And it also means we are by no means not to do that. In fact, if you have never moved around in worship in any way, it's an incredible challenge to move your physical body as you are moved to kind of in your spirit and in your mind towards the presence of God. And as we gather together and we participate together as a church and as a whole body, it's one of the best ways that we can demonstrate that the truth of who God is, is bigger and beyond who we are. God is not just the God that I know. God is the God that we know, that we love, that we serve. And to hear, you know, 200 voices proclaiming that he is good and he has done great things, for example, holds a different and deeper and more resonant power in my mind than simply declaring on our own. But again, that doesn't mean by any means don't declare it on your own. It's incredible to have that tandem of the personal relationship with God and the whole church relating to God at the same time. As we have seen in just these first two short lines of the Lord's Prayer, we actually have such enormous truths of Christian life are summarized and held in these phrases that as we live to worship God, to declare his glory, to make his reputation known, to stand together as a church and to love each other and be united shoulder to shoulder in that endeavor, we know that this prayer of, that Jesus is teaching us it just calls us to so much more, to such a full life of worship and of love for God. That's really great. Thank you so much for that, Catherine. It's been great to hear a little bit about some things that you've been praying through and, and thinking mm. through about the, those verses. That's really awesome. We're now just going to discuss a little bit, a couple of things that came to my mind as you were talking there and some, some things, some questions I, I have. Something that I, I really liked from which you opened with was the sense of it being sort of our father, not my father mm. and that sort of community aspect yeah. of praying together jesus teaches us to pray to be corporate community together mm. now obviously as as your husband i know that you have a real passion for that but obviously not <laughs> yeah, everyone will know that so maybe just chat a bit about that what drew you to to really want to draw that out at the, at the, as a first point yeah for me this has been a real focus and a, a passion for a bit is focusing on what does it look like for us to kind of revere that time as a whole church and to focus on 
being the whole church together when we come to worship as opposed to 200 people individually worship, worshiping Jesus that happen to be in the same place. I think it's something that there's a long kind of established history for in the scriptures. We see that, you know, Israel starts out as a nation family and a nation family of faith. And as we move through the period, you know, in the time of Jesus, again, you see that large extended family model where Mary and Joseph lose Jesus in Jerusalem for the festival and they don't realise for three days. It's not because they were horrendously negligent parents. Uh, it's because there would have been a cultural expectation that Jesus would have been with his cousins or with his aunt or with his uncle. And as a whole family, they move together. I wonder what it would be like in the modern day to have such good relationships with your family and with your church family that you could lose a kid for three days. <laughs> I'm sure it'd be quite something. But we see kind of through time and through the development of our modern day culture there is a shift away from community and communal practice and communal life into something that is more individualized and you know one's life is self-actualized and you can function on your own and maybe it's you know a household of three or four people but beyond that a kind of those deep bonds of family life don't resonate in the modern day in the way that they did in the time of Jesus and as much as our individual faith walks are just that, they are individual and our faith is personal, I think part of why God calls us to a church and to being the church is because there is a deep joy in being a people together that God wants to bless us with. And it is intentional that you need more than one person to do everything that, you know, we are each one part of the body and you need the whole body sewn together to function at its fittest and at its fullest. Again, these are metaphors and pictures that God has chosen and that he has woven into his creation intentionally, that he teaches us in. And that is not for nothing. <laughs> and I think that we do both kind of the individual and the corporate, but because there is so much cultural influence that points us to an individuality and to dealing with things on our own, I think a lot of my passion comes from acknowledging, you know, the pendulum is significantly in one direction in our cultural context. So wanting to be aware that it can exist on the other side, kind of the other side of that coin to mix my metaphors in order to kind of find a balance in between, hopefully. But yeah, that's kind of my passion for that. I think that it's so well founded that faith life is to be communal life. Um, and we have to fight really hard for that in the modern day and in kind of a white Western 20, 21st century context. Mm. And in terms of approaching specifically prayer, I suppose, because we're talking about prayer, what do you think that looks like for us as a church, not just a Christ church, but just generally as the church to, yes, bring back that where it's swung one way in the pendulum to sort mm. of try and find that that plumb line, as it were, yeah. in the middle? What does it, that practically look like, do you think? I mean, I wish I knew the answer. I think that there are lots of things that we can do and look back on to help us really fulfill that. I know that the church, for example, has a long historical context of corporate prayer, of liturgy. I've spent some of my Christian walk in an Anglican church and I had very little patience for liturgy until I had to do it for two years. And I see a real joy of being able to pray together the same words. I mean, it's what we do when we sing. We are praying to melody together as a congregation. And so finding that joy in praying together. I also think that 
striving to pray together, whether it be as a family or a small group or together on a Sunday morning, whatever that context is, as colleagues even, is a real challenge to a lot of Britishisms. And it's something that needs kind of intentional thought. I know that for some, for many, praying as a family, particularly if you have teenage kids or really little kids or, you know, whatever in between, um, it can be awkward and it can be difficult to focus and it's hard to know how to do that. And so we can be robbed of that joy of being a family who prays together because those barriers of time and awkwardness like get so big. And like ideally, the gathering of church is almost like a supplementation and a celebration of the corporate church family life that happens outside of organised meetings. And I agree that those kind of those times of prayer should be organic. But I, I'll be honest, I don't think they're that natural. I think it's a discipline that we can all invest in developing. It's a culture clash with the world around us and the, the lives that we live. And it takes focus and intention, making a choice and setting yourself on a path of discipline. And that is, you know, a large part of discipleship is saying, I choose to walk my faith with my brothers and sisters around Mm. me. I choose to ask for prayer when I need it. I choose to offer prayer even when I'm scared that they're going to say no. You know, if a, especially if a Christian brother or sister shares that they've got something going on, do you naturally want to pray for them? And if you do, do you ask? Mm. (laughs) Do you do that? Even if you're, you know, at home on the sofa or in a coffee shop or it's, in the staff room or whatever, there is a real power in setting yourself as part of your discipleship. Say, I'm going to share this and edify and encourage my brothers and sisters through prayer, because I know that many of us have experienced that deep encouragement from the presence of God in us and the way that God speaks to us. And what a joy it is to let God speak through us to those around us. So I wouldn't necessarily prescribe a particular, you know, round the dinner table this many times a week, blah, blah, blah. But for each of us to take some time, take some stock of our lives and think, where could I make time to pray with the people that I see on the most regular basis, particularly if those people are also Christians or they are young people that you are raising in faith. What does it look like for us to make a point of praying together, of hearing the truth of God spoken over our lives and to choose to bless each other by speaking God's truth over Mm. over each other? Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's that's really good. Thank you. And on a saying on a corporate level, I've got a couple of personal questions as well. But <laughs> You're <all day>. just <laughs> because of the sort of it follows on naturally, you were talking obviously corporate worship and how mm. we worship God, we how we praise God, we as you said, sort of hallowing His name, keeping His name holy, glorifying His name, and the West Westminster Catechism question one. You know, what's the purpose of life? to glorify God and to worship him forever. That is the purpose of life. Yeah, I was was thinking when you were talking about sort of dancing and people raising their hands and all those different things, it's something I've been thinking of for a while, sort of nature nurture thing of what it (laughs) looks like during worship to act certain ways. And it's something that I find quite interesting. Different churches I've been into and obviously some people very naturally like to raise their hands. I'm a hand raiser, always have Mm -hmm. been to a certain extent. But I also know that I 
grew up with parents who were hand raisers and so yeah. that, that was modeled to me and but we were at a me and Catherine were at a wedding actually the other day and mm. it's something I find really interesting when you are at a place and it's it happens in churches obviously because we long for non-christians to be there but weddings are a very specific time if you have non-christian people attending the wedding but it's a christian couple getting married and you have a time of worship and you can it's almost like spot Spot the Christian. Spot the Christian to a certain extent because someone's, you know, got their eyes closed or whatever. What they're not they're not having to focus so hard on the lyrics. Maybe they've got their hands out. And it was something that I just found really encouraging as the worship got on. People just raising their hands and like just praising together in and and non-Christians being able to see that, I just think was so awesome. That sort of corporate body coming together in prayer and praise Mm. and blessing like this couple, but obviously praising God and, and showing what that meant in their lives. And I do think that it's a real testimony to those around as well. And as we glorify God's name, as we keep his name holy, as we show that in our lives, that's not just, that's a testimony to others and encouragement to us. It does more than just, I suppose, what we might see it doing, which is we're saying, you know, we're praising God, thanking him for all he's done, who he is, everything's to be going upwards. But at the same time, there is a blessing on like a horizontal level as well. For sure. Yeah, it's something that I've kind of really journeyed with, I guess, in kind of the last 10 years. I grew up in a significantly non-hand-raisy church. And it was something that I, for a long time, was like, you know, God knows my thoughts. He knows my heart. So that's that's worship. Why do I need to move? Yeah, Yeah, like... I don't need to supplement my worship in any way with movement. And that is, I still agree with that today. There's no requirement of movement in worship. But at the same time, I think that there is something to be said in at least trying and just seeing what happens. Having kind of read around it and things like that, we see in the New Testament, Paul talks about like the body, soul and spirit. And that aligns a lot with kind of that modern culture, that kind of post-enlightenment separation, you know, the separation of church and state, the separation of faith and science, the separation of self of like mind and body, a very kind of modern scientific perspective. And it has really permeated our culture as well. As as a society, we're generally quite reserved and we like to keep things in their separate spaces. Yeah. We, lo- um, we, we love the fence. Yeah. And not letting things overlap too much and things like that. In the Old Testament, particularly through the Psalms, we see that reference to the soul. And in the original Hebrew, it's the word nephesh. And nephesh can also be translated to throat and the sense of, you know, so my soul longs after you. So my throat cries out. So my very being feels that tug and that pull to God. And given that we live in a slightly more reserved culture, It's just been a really interesting challenge that I've placed kind of on myself over the years of, yes, I can worship God in just my mind, or I can be moved in my spirit and in my emotions and not show that. But if I'm honest, there have been times that I have been moved in my spirit and hidden that because I didn't want other people to see me, you know, feeling too deeply. And kind of, you know, we're following the footsteps of people like David who shout, let me be even more undignified in this, you know, let me be the worst dancer at this prayer meeting. Let me be the most out of tune and let everyone know because I'm singing so loudly and to throw ourselves around and, you know, throw ourselves down before God or throw our hands up in the air. There's a degree to which we 
lose our dignity in doing that. It's very brash and open and emotional and people can tell how much we love God, which can feel a little bit skin crawly. And because it feels a little bit skin crawly, it's the exact reason why we should challenge that in ourselves and give it a go. I know that when I'm at a point where I am beyond words in worship, I don't know what's going on in my head. I don't know how to connect. I'm struggling to engage with the music. Dance has been really powerful for me, but I also hate doing it in front of other people. I find it really stressful, but I see God in a new and different way when I dance. I feel the Holy Spirit ministering to my emotions in a different way when I dance. And so I am robbing myself of a deeper interaction with God if I insist on standing still. That doesn't mean I do do it because it is awkward (laughs) to dance in front of other people, especially because I'm not a dancer by any stretch. But it means I know that I've experienced like trying something to worship with body and soul as well as mind as well as heart you know that's what we're called to to love god with all that we are in romans we are a living give your bodies as a living sacrifice which as much is about work as it is about the freedom that we can experience when we worship and when we worship together as you you were talking about that it just came to mind the the picture of the in the gospels and the woman comes in with the jar of perfume mm. and, you know, she's wiping this on Jesus' feet and she's crying and, you know, wiping his feet with her hair. Yeah. And that sense of undignified and so the disciples were... It's like, it's I, all I, very I it's, embarrassing it's to all, love God that much. Yeah, exactly. That sense of like, oh, how how deeply shocking that you would let this happen to you, Jesus. And like that sense of... And he glorifies her for all eternity yeah, in the scripture yeah. as a result. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think that's... That's really, really, really cool. Cool. Let's bring to a close a little bit. (laughs) One more question that I want to ask you. When you're praying and in your own personal sort of Mm -hmm. prayer life, there's that tension you were speaking of, of, so there's Father God and there is, and and he is holy. He is Father God. He's holy. He is the awesome God who draws near to us. Mm -hmm. How do you keep that tension when you're praying? And I don't mean like, as is often the case, I'm not saying... I think you have perfected this. <laughs> Teach us your ways. That's what not what I'm mean? saying. But like, what are some things that you, you know, as you're praying, you're like, okay, well, I need to remember that God is my father. He loves me. He yeah. wants best for me. But at the same time, he's holy. And so because of that, he is not like, you know, that sort of trying not to turn God into the fluffy. Yeah. The Holy Spirit that fits in your back pocket. And goes with you everywhere. Yeah, of yeah. course. I think it's something that, in my personal life, I see as kind of cyclical. And for me, it's a great way of remembering that God is so much bigger than we are in that I cannot physically observe all of God at once. I cannot hold the entirety of God's nature in my brain at one time. God is always King. God is always Father. God is always overjoyed in his people. God is always heartbroken at the sin and the brokenness of this world. And me in my little meek human form, I can only see some of that at a time. And so sometimes it will feel like God has become angry. And that's not true. I've just been able to see God's anger at sin. You're currently seeing that facet, as it were, that face of the dice. (laughs) 100%. And I think there is something of that in God's holiness and God's fathership as we kind of work between the two. It's like building up a muscle as we lean to and fro in that. And if we are too much inclined to one and not the other um it will 
kind of set our relationships with God when they are supposed to be dynamic and living and active. And if God is only our father and not the Lord of all, then he becomes a great comforter, but not necessarily a great help. And God will not force his way through our lives, but will, it means that we are left with a God who will listen to us and tell us that that sucks. And God is so much more almighty and powerful than that. We believe in the miraculous moving power of the spirit and we see it. Have we seen it recently? Do we know that God is moving in that way because he is all powerful? At the same time, if God is all powerful, but not a father, then it becomes a bit big and scary and unapproachable. And God has chosen to be father first. He is very approachable and we can approach the throne with confidence, you know, Paul tells us. Something I have to remind myself of a lot, if I'm honest. But yeah, it's that sense of almost, you know, there's like children's toys that you flick them and they kind of wobble around, but they don't quite fall over. Can I just, no, no I know exactly like what a, you're, like a tip, tipsy-turvy yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. There's a degree to which faith can operate like that, where we as ourselves stand in the middle and as we rock from side to side and we catch different glimpses of the different facets of God and keeping that motion, keeping that dynamic perspective on God, not letting God just be one thing or be what he has been for the last however long. It keeps a relationship with God fresh and interesting and revitalizing. But yeah, if you are struggling to comprehend both things at once, that's okay because both things are such enormous truths that one human brain cannot hold both perfectly together in full perspective all the time. And that's a good thing. Yeah. My my brain has now completely extended the metaphor with the <laughs> with that thing. Because I was I was just thinking about, you know, like the base. Yeah. Like it can never fall over. Yeah. Because the base is sort of heavy and weighted. Yeah. And that sense of like God's anchoring yeah, us and his sort of weight, meaning that as we fall, we don't fall too far. Yeah. We are just enough to then come back the other way. I'm extending the metaphor way too much, (laughs) but uh, that's really cool. I really love that. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for listening in at home. I hope you've enjoyed the first episode of this series. We're going to be continuing and next month we have the great joy of having Ken with us and Ken is going to be talking about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless. (laughs) 